Hello, and you're listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hari. And today we continue our in-depth look into 70s movies. And today we're going to be talking about the 1975 blockbuster summer hit, Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Roy Schreiber, Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw. Blockbuster used to be a video store, used to be a brand. It's also the name of a game show. It's the name of a game that you can play at home. But it was first a term used in war before its term reached cinema to describe a movie. You see, the origin of this term that has evolved into many things, as I've just mentioned, came from the war. Not the First World War, the Second World War. Times magazine back in 1942 published an article of the Allied bombing of key military targets and industrial targets in Italy. And the bombs they used on Italy for this mission were called blockbusters because of their abilities to destroy an entire city block. From then, the term continued to appear in military conversations, terminology, and even media reports on general allied aerial bombings, usually over Europe. It then reached America, and they used it as a metaphor for something shocking and explosive. From that point, this term was then used to describe shocking users from around the world, from lawsuits to sports news. It wasn't until the year later, 1943, that they start using it for a movie. Not for its money, but for its content. It was the movie Mission to Moscow, and the critics called it as explosive as a blockbuster. And that was the first time ever it was used in cinema. It didn't take long for that term to specifically describe movies that were commercially successful. Now, after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people or critics were a little reluctant to use a bomb-based metaphor for describing moving pictures. But then the 50s came and it started to flourish again in a light-hearted way to describe movies. Critics once again used the term and called Cecile DeMille's Samson and Delilah a box office blockbuster. In fact, an English critic started using the term as well for a film called Quo Vadis in 1951, saying simply, it was a blockbuster, right up there with Birth of the Nation and Gone with the Wind. From then on, this sort of cemented the idea that a blockbuster, by vague definition, would be a film that would gross a lot of money. Now, 1953, according to many experts, was the year of the blockbusters because 135 movies that were released in that year grossed over a million or more. And the same happened in 1958, more famously with the film The Bridge on the the River Kwai in 57. By the 60s, it had primarily become an entertainment term instead of a military term, associating the term blockbusters with popular entertainment with big budgets and a high impact towards Hollywood. It was then, in the summer of 1975, June 30th, that a 26-year-old unknown director by the name of Steven Spielberg created the first, by definition, blockbuster movies in the name of Jaws. You see, in the summer months, people tend to stay outside, play sports, do some gardening, or go to the beach. Before Jaws, summer months were the quietest months for the cinema industry, so Spielberg chose to release this film right in the middle of summer to spook people, especially going to the beach. Eventually, this idea of blockbusters became associated with summer releases, high-budget, popcorn entertainment, money-making in terms of gross domestic and global... This was then confirmed properly when two years later Star Wars was was released in the summer of 1977. And from then on, blockbusters had grown to become this definitive thing, starting way back from a military term in World War II. 
This is why Jaws is remembered. It was technically the first ever blockbuster movie ever made. And to this day, Hollywood and the cinema industry still follow this formula of a blockbuster movie. We know what a blockbuster movie is now. And that's why Spielberg is one of the greatest directors ever. He was ahead of the game. He changed the game with Jaws, with how he sold it, with when to sell it. And it's beautiful to see how it's adapted and grown throughout the years. It was unheard of for a movie to make money in the summer. Summer releases were usually the time experimental films came out or independent films. And bear in mind, Jaws was a tad experimental. However, it had a budget of £7 million. It grossed $471 million globally during the quietest period of cinema. 67 million people in the US alone went to see Jaws. No other film in history had made over $100 million. This film made $471 million. It was the highest grossing movie ever at the time. It was shocking. It was explosive. Jaws was the film that started blockbuster movies. And this is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to why this film was so good, so remembered and so iconic. I mean, the film itself kickstarted Spielberg and John Williams' career in becoming two of their best in their craft. I mean, Spielberg admits that this film wouldn't have been as successful if it wasn't for the score of John Williams. It's amazing because John Williams first played the theme for Spielberg and he laughed at him and said, said okay john that's funny where's the actual one and john williams just laughed and he was like this is it steven this is what i've done for this movie and steven spielberg was worried really scared about it but he had to use it he had no choice but it's very clear now he had nothing to worry about with the theme When I talk about all things iconic, the theme of this movie brings shivers and goosebumps to a black screen when the movie opens. It's electrifying and it certainly established a theme for this movie. Be scared of going into the water because something is coming. It must be an Oscar first, by the way, for John Williams, for because he orchestrated the Academy Awards when Jaws won. And obviously he won an Oscar for best score. So he had to come from the podium beneath to the stage to accept the award and then quickly return so the music could continue, which was hilarious to watch if you did watch the 1976 Oscars. And it's the imagination, it's the imagination that really carries this film. And it's confirmed with the really subtle but shocking theme from John Williams. Now, I believe it was Hitchcock who said that suspense is all about what you show the audience and at what part you do it at. Now, his analogy describing suspense, saying that if you simply watch two people sat at a table for five minutes and they do nothing, they don't speak, they don't interact, they're just sat there staring at each other for five minutes, that five minutes becomes boring. It's not going to carry the audience. It's dry. Nothing happens. And then at the end of that five minutes, there's an explosion and they blow up and that's it. And you get like two seconds of entertainment or suspense or just confusion. You just get two seconds of it. That's it. So imagine the same five minutes of exactly the same interaction. But 12 seconds in, we show you the audience that there is a bomb underneath the table. That will be detonating in four minutes. Suddenly, the exact same scene becomes something else. It's not dry anymore. It has depth. It's hard to watch. You're on the edge of your seat. And right there, that whole five minutes becomes a piece of suspense. And that's all about when to show the audiences certain things. And this is exactly what Spielberg does in Jaws. We know that this is a movie about a shark. We know what a shark looks like. However, we don't see it until right towards the end. It's it's because Spielberg knows, the audiences knows what a shark looks like. So why show them right away? 
but it's beneath the water. Showing it would just confirm their fears, their thoughts. However, you don't show and you use John Williams' music, your mind will entertain fears. And that itself creates suspense because you haven't actually seen it yet. So when he chooses to see it, or when he chooses for you to see it, it's shocking, it's scary, it's massive. And that's why that line, we're going to need a bigger boat, is so iconic because it comes two seconds after we first see the massive monster of a shark. And when you see the shark, and when you see the shark, audiences were screaming. A lesson learned really well with Spielberg. He wanted the audiences actually to scream again. So he made that scene where we find a decapitated head and audiences screamed at that bit too. But he found when that scene was introduced, because it happens earlier on in the movie, that they're on their guard. The audiences were ready again for another scream. So they didn't scream as much when you first see the shark, which is towards the end. So he, you know, he took that mistake on the chin and he always said, always have one big scare in your movie, not several. And, you know, the people that managed to watch the movie two weeks without that scene with the decapitated head was first introduced. The screams were loud when the shark was first shown. If you've watched Jaws, if you ever, if you're in that generation that watched Jaws in the opening two weeks of the release, you are part of a very special club experiencing true terror at the time. And this technique in suspense is done all the time in movies now. Tarantino actually has a gift with this sort of technique. I mean, the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, if you've ever seen it, is a mundane conversation. However, when he shows us, the audience, that there is actually Jews hiding underneath the floorboard, the whole scene becomes more gripping, more suspenseful. Now, speaking of that line, one of the most famous lines in cinema history, and usually some of the best things are done by chance or luck or by accident. And this is one of the cases. That line, I'm going to need a bigger boat or we're going to need a bigger boat, was not in the script. I've done just one of the most uh, annoying things that I preach. I mean, the line is we're going to need a bigger boat, not I'm going to need a bigger boat. So a lot of people get that line mixed up and I just did. So I'm a bit hypocritical there. It just flows out better, doesn't it? Um, so the mechanical shark, which was sort of introduced um, later on in the movie during pre-production, was having a lot of technical issues of it and how to make it look really authentic. And uh, it was actually called Bruce, by the way, which was after Steven Spielberg's lawyer. And it was the first time Roy Schneider saw it and he reacted and he said that line. Um, and it wasn't in the script. He just said that line because it was massive, this sort of mechanical shark. And it's just dug into the Hollywood archives as one of the greatest quotes of all time. And for a film being noted as one of the scariest films ever made, yet hold the certificate of a PG, that is why Steven Spielberg is one of the best directors alive. This is not a movie about a shark. This is a movie about Chief Brody and his battle to save this harbor, this harbor town of New York. What Spielberg does so well in all of his movies is have your protagonist well established in the movie, have him humanise as much as you can. I mean, the small scenes where he's opening the wine bottles or when his son is copying his movements or him celebrating with all the people when they think the shark is dead just makes the hunt or search for this shark more interesting or, in fact, more tense. Because he's not the typical hero. He doesn't look like a hero. He wears glasses. He's quite lanky. And he's not a typical established hero on screen. He's your everyday guy. It's one of the reasons Charlton Heston was rejected for the main role because Spielberg knew audiences are going to know that you're the hero and that the audiences knows that you know you're not you know you're not beatable so you know what's going to happen at the end and you know with the woman dying at the start I mean and even the child dying with all that blood and broad daylight there were no rules here it was Spielberg saying this is not your typical happy movie this monster has no remorse it's a killing machine it's been here before it's here it's been here longer than us 
and it will protect its chosen habitat. I mean, with today's episode, I didn't necessarily talk about the symbolic meaning of Jaws and how Spielberg likes to use the sort of father-son tone or talk about tensions on set with Dreyfus and Shaw. I mean, because the main focus I think should be on this movie is the fact that it started something that is still going on, an idea of shifting expectations and becoming successful at doing so. And this is what Spielberg did with such a simple premise, a shark terrorizing a harbour. And that's all it is. I mean, he uses emotions, character development and stock characters in terms of the scientist, Captain Ahab, the father, you know, to further develop the story, to make sure that the audiences are familiar with, you know, who is who here, to make sure that this is an enjoyable experience. And on the day it came out, and even 45 years later, that's right, 45 years later, this film is still as scary as it was back then. And I just think it's one of the most authentic movies to come out based on a monster or an, a creature or an animal and it was the first to do a lot of things and it kick-started Spielberg it kick-started John Williams it even kick-started George Lucas in a way as well to outperform his friend and he did Star Wars so this film is so important and it just sort of made summer releases that more enjoyable now we, when we go to cinemas it's a summer experience that's why Transformers came out in the summer that's why you have all these big movies come out with big popcorn flicks Armageddon came out in the summer it's just a formula that has carried on and it started all the way back in 1975 from Jaws and another reason I'm talking about this film is because we're getting a we're getting to a period now where we're doing loads of remakes and prequels and sequels and I think cinema is just losing its originality and it's very easy to just sort of copy a film and make it better it's same thing with music as well of course you're going to have someone sing the song better than the original because I mean your voice might be better the only reason the original holds true to some people in fact most people is because it was the first you know it was it was not really about it's not really about sounding better or trying to do the movie better. It's just trying to, it's, it's about when that film came out at the time it came out, it did this. It's very easy to copy something 45 years later and make it better with special effects, CGI, better looking actors. It's just not the case. I don't believe in any of that. I believe of doing a film that stands the test of the time it was made in. And then for 1975, for Steven Spielberg, someone who was 26 years old, by the way, to do a film like that, it was absolutely extraordinary. And when you watch it 45 years later, later on, you just have to appreciate the film for its time and that's sort of part of the experience of watching films some people watch old films like you know i keep mentioning citizen kane but if you know if you watch citizen kane and it was god knows what year that came out 1940s i think and you you, you, it's going to be boring to a lot of people especially this generation this you know you watch that movie and it's going to be awful even watching casablanca not many people are going to sit through that entire movie but if you watch it with a different perspective and you watch it as you would have watched it at the time it came out, realising they didn't have this, that or the other, and they still made this movie with that story, with these regulations, with a world war, you know, with world wars happening in the world, with God knows what else happening, recessions, political arguments. It is extraordinary what things, you know, things that happen. And, you know, right now we're going through a pandemic and, you know, films have been on halt. So, you know, we've just had Tenant come out and it's doing awfully at the cinema. I mean, Christopher Nolan, that's all you need to know about that film. That's all that needs to sell tickets. And it's not. People are scared to come out of their homes. And, you know, that was a similar time in the 1950s, the 1940s, even the 1930s. And yet people decided to become 
you know, inventive, decided to, you know, not use other people's ideas. And they just started to invent. They started to go ahead of the curb and they started to create something new. And that's the reason I talk about films like these. These are the films, even 45 years later on, that stand the test of time. And there's not many films that do that. There is definitely not many films that can do it. And it's very hard to find a film that you watch today coming out in 2020 and realizing that film 45 years later on, you know, is going to be studied in school and it's going to be talked about. And that's why I think Jaws is such an important film and it's still going to be talked about, I think, you know, well on past a hundred years. And it's going to be one of those films that will just be there as one of the most iconic shark films, not even shark films, just first ever blockbuster film ever made. Well, you know, look, I could ramble on and I have just been rambling for the last five minutes, but that's all I have time for with Jaws. And please subscribe or rate and review my podcast on iTunes, Google, Amazon and Spotify, whatever one you use these days. And you can also find me on Instagram, Film Exploration AH or lowercase or one word. And thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.